Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you. If I haven't had a chance to, to, to meet you, what's up, guys? Uh, my, name is, uh, my name is Chris. Uh, I'm a pastor here, uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's just good to be with you guys uh, this morning. Uh, today is a special day. It's a special day, right, where we get to enjoy one of my favorite pastimes, starting a new book of the Bible, right? Going through the book of Titus uh, this morning. Uh, and some of you laughed because you thought I was making a reference to it being Super Bowl Sunday, right? Uh, others of you just found out right now that it was Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, and if that's you, you're, you're my people, right? Uh, I actually do enjoy watching uh, football every now and then. It's not, it's not, just not really my thing, you know? It's not, I don't watch every game. Super Bowl is like one of the very few games that I'll watch uh, a year, uh, but but really, I'll just more enjoy like the food and the fellowship and the drinks and just the conversations. But the one time, it's it's the one time a year. Uh, one of the things I love about it is that's the one time a year that uh, my wife doesn't actually mind me making pigs in a blanket. Right? <laughs> uh, you know, pigs in a blanket, like mini hot dogs that you wrap in like uh, just just doughy biscuit it's really good and like every every other time all throughout the year every other day in the year she winces when i make pids in a blanket she calls it bachelor food right uh but on super bowl sunday we'll wrap those pigs in a cuddly little blanket and indulge with community and other people and it's just delicious now there's a reason that i mention any of this and it actually is related to our new series in the book of titus and you see, I am a nominal, once-a-year consumer of football. Uh, I'm not super invested in it. I don't have a team. Uh, I just found out last week who was actually playing. But if I was a big football fan, my behavior would look different. I wouldn't just watch the big game, I'd watch almost every game. If I was a big fan, I'd probably have a favorite team. I'd own a jersey and a hat like some of you this morning. I'd know enough stats to make a dent in your fantasy football league. The reason is because when you love something, that will in some form or fashion determine how you live. What you love determines how you live. What you ultimately delight in determines what your life will display. What you believe in, the thing that you're all about, will determine your behavior in the world. How you are in community. When you're at home with your family. When you're at, at work, the way that you treat others when you're amongst your neighbors. And that brings us to the small but mighty book of Titus. 
And we're going to be in this book, this three-chapter book, over the next several weeks. We're going to go through it a bit slowly. And so if you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and grab it and turn to the book of Titus. It's towards the end of the Bible. There's only a few other books after Titus. Uh, So turn to the book of Titus. What we see uh, in this book is that in an even greater sense, more than sports fandom, in an even greater sense, if you love the Lord, If God has saved you out of the mess of your sin, if he's given you a new life, if you have received his grace, then it will change the way that you live. If you have received his grace, if you've truly received his grace, you will live it out for the glory of God and the good of others. And so we're calling this series Titus, Grace Lived Out. Titus is all about being firm in the doctrine of grace, but also fruitful in the deeds of grace. And so we're going to get into Titus, but first would you would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for uh, just the awesome privilege that we have to study this small and often overlooked but mighty and powerful book of Titus. I was reading this week that um, Titus can also be considered like an apostolic manual for church planting. I think, Lord, it's because there's something for us to learn in this small book about what it means uh, to be healthy Christians and what it means to be a healthy church. And so, Lord, by your Spirit and through the power of your Word, would you just have your way with our hearts beginning this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So let's talk Titus. Let's talk Titus. Let's start with the background info that would be helpful for you to know, and then we'll walk through the first few verses that we read this morning. So by way of preface, here's what you need to know. First, who's Titus? Who's this Titus guy. Titus is a Greek follower of Jesus, and he's a pastor. We find from reading the scriptures that he was a companion of of Paul. He was a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. Paul actually mentions Titus in some of his other letters to other churches, like, like in his letter to the Galatians and in his second letter to the Corinthians. We read about Titus. Paul makes reference of him. And one of the missions that the two of them went on together is to this Greek island called Crete. The Greek island called Crete, where Paul went there with Titus and he went around the island proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, planting churches with Titus by his side. And when Paul's work is done there, when he went throughout the island uh, preaching the gospel and, and planting these churches, uh, he, Titus sort of stays behind. Titus stays behind to sort of help establish these new churches to help oversee them and watch them grow toward health. And this is one of the reasons, like I mentioned in my prayer, that I'm eager to dive into this particular book with you this morning and over the next several weeks. Because this book, Titus, was written with the, uh, with the purpose of serving newly planted churches. Just like ours. Just like ours, it's, it's the only New Testament letter actually written to a church 
planter. Uh, uh, you, you might be familiar with Timothy. Timothy was a pa- an existing pastor of churches, but Titus was specifically charged with overseeing new churches. And so Paul wrote to Titus specifically to encourage him and teach him and instruct him on how to establish health in churches that just haven't been around for too long. And see, Paul and Titus, the two of them, they had a heart for this island, Crete. They had a heart for this island and the people of this island because they had a big view picture of God's heart for this island. They knew Paul and Timothy, or, or Paul and Titus, they knew from personal experience that, that Jesus came for the redemption of people. He came for the renewal of all things. They both had personally experienced that in their own lives and in their relationships. And so they longed to see this island transformed by the glory, for the glory of God and for the good of others. You see, their mission, their heart for Crete should be just like ours. For the communities that we live in. Just like ours. We've been at this church planning thing for about two years. We started as just a few families in in the backyard, and God has been steadily growing us ever since then. We've launched our membership process last year, and as we're turning the corner into this new year, into 2020, just the focus on training leaders, on growing spiritually and reaching our neighbors with the hope of the gospel, as we're pressing forward and gaining traction on the mission we believe God has called us uh, uh, to, it behooves us in this timely moment to study this great little book of Titus so that we can sort of like evaluate ourselves according to this book so that we can be a healthy church that brings glory to God and good to others because we are living out the grace of our great God. And so the subtitle again, or the banner over our series, is Grace Lived Out. The makings of a healthy church is that we want to be a church, we want to be Christians that live out the grace that we've been transformed by. Titus is a great little summary of what that looks like. Martin Luther has this to say about the book of Titus. He says this is a short epistle or letter, but it's also a model of Christian doctrine in which is comprehended in a masterful way all that is necessary for a Christian to know and live. So that's what we're going to seek to learn from the book of Titus. What do we need to know if we want to be centered on God's grace? How do we live if we are centered and driven by the grace of our God? And so there are a few things that I want us to see now in the first few verses that we need to settle that each of us needs to settle. There's a few things that you and I need to settle if we want to live out God's gracious work in our lives. A few things that are foundational to the makings of a healthy church. Number one, you need to know who you are. Know who you are in Christ. Know who you are in Christ. Read the beginning of verse one with me. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
So Paul begins his letter by first telling us some insightful truths about who he is. Now, it might be helpful for you to know the difference about how we address letters today versus the ancient Near East, right? Like, in, And when we address letters today, we begin with the recipient, right? We say, Dear John or Dear Jane, right? Or, uh, or, or maybe in, in letters today, you'll have a letterhead at the top that will tell you like who it's coming from. But in the ancient Near East, they didn't have that. They didn't have return uh, envelopes uh, with return addresses on them. They didn't have letterheads at the top of their printed out corporate letters, right? In the ancient Near East, you started a letter by saying who you are. And something important about your relationship with this person for them to know and keep in mind if they want to receive this letter in its proper context. And, and, and so Paul begins his letter to Titus by saying and introducing himself as Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now if you remember anything about the apostle Paul when we went through the book of Philippians last year, you know that Paul has a gnarly biography, right? He's got a crazy story. When we first meet Paul in the book of Acts, he goes by the name Saul, which is his Hebrew name because he's a rabbi, a Jewish teacher. And, and Saul, he, he, he was a, a, a Pharisee. Uh, he was respected amongst the religious leaders of his day. Uh, he was also respected by the government and, and both the religious leaders of his tribe and the, Greek, the, the Roman government saw Christians as a threat. They didn't like this message of servanthood and love and grace that Christians were spreading because as, as Christianity was spreading, they started to lose their grip on power and on worldly authority. And so uh, Paul was uh, one of their go-to guys that would run a, uh, just run amok around the ancient Near East, around the region, and he would rally up Christians and he would persecute them, drag them off to either get beaten or to get killed and 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 just all kinds of wicked stuff that's Paul and then he gets radically converted when he meets Jesus and comes to saving faith God changes his heart reorients his life and he goes from being a murderer of Christians to being a missionary for God and the very fact I want you to see that Paul is writing this letter. The very fact that God would use such a person like Paul to invest into a leader like Timothy, that God would use a guy like Paul to preach the gospel and plant churches throughout this island, the very fact that God would use a guy like Paul should preach grace to our hearts. Man, we see the same power of God's grace in the lives of many of his people here in this room this morning. I don't want you to miss how awestruck you should be, how marvelous it is that Paul, Paul is writing this letter. Now, some of you in this room, I've known for 
a number of, of years, and when I first met you, you were just, just coming to new faith in Christ, or you were agnostic, or you were atheist, you were a huge skeptic of this whole Jesus thing. I know some of you in this room who've joined us just in the last couple years when we started this church, uh, you came not wanting anything to know, uh, to, to do with Jesus, but just curious about why he was changing the lives of some of the people that you knew. And so you came, and now God has radically changed your own life. I don't want you to miss, by Paul's address, just the radical, scandalous grace that is at work and the fact that he's writing this letter. And I don't want you to miss this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, the way that God's same transforming, amazing work of grace that he's done in Paul. I don't want you to miss Marvin at God's gracious work in your own life this morning. And if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, I want you to see now how Paul, that the way that Paul views himself in this address should inform how we view ourselves as followers of Jesus. So what does he call himself? He says, first, he calls himself a servant of God. A servant of God. Paul used to serve himself, but now he serves God. If you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, you used to serve yourself, but now you serve God. Romans 6 says that you used to be a slave to sin, a slave to sin, but now because of Christ, you are free, liberated to serve God. Now to the ear of the person who hasn't tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that might not sound too appealing to be described as a servant or servant of God. But the fact is we are all creatures that have been hardwired from birth to serve someone or something. Our man Oscar preached about this a few weeks ago. You remember that? His, 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 uh, his message on, on what it means uh, to be uh, free, to, to follow Christ, what it means to serve Christ. I love this quote that he dropped on us a few weeks ago. He said, you and I have been told that freedom is doing what we want to do. But Jesus, Jesus teaches that true freedom is doing what you were meant to do. What you were meant to do. Love that. That's fire. Now, Paul not only calls himself a servant of God, happily calls himself a servant of God, but he also calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? An apostle is someone who was sent by Christ into the ministry. And in the first century, that particularly meant somebody who was given authority by Jesus to represent him to the world. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, there's a parallel meaning for you. You and I might not be capital A apostles like Paul and the 12 disciples, right? But we do have as followers of Jesus, and sort of apostolic calling. Given authority by Jesus to represent him to the world. Apostle basically means sent one. And then Jesus himself, in Matthew 28, he gave every follower of Jesus the same mission that he gave Paul when he said, in Matthew 28, verse 19, he tells all his disciples, go therefore, and make disciples. 
And so if you're a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, that means that part of your identity now, part of who you are in Christ, is somebody who is to go now and make disciples. And so Paul calls himself a servant of God. He calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. And what that should inform us is that if we belong to Jesus, we too are sent servants. Sent servants. He says, in the rest of verse 1, he says, Apostle, he calls himself a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. There's a couple things I want you to consider here. First, remember, when Paul, when Paul first arrived at the island of Crete, there were no Christians, all right? Like when he and Titus landed in Crete, when their feet hit the shore at Crete, it was an unreached people group. And so before Paul arrived at the island of Crete, there were no Christians, there were no churches. He was sent there to reach the elect, which is those who would come to saving faith in Jesus. And he was sent to build them up in the faith. And look, this is the heart that Jesus has for every community. This is the heart that Jesus has for every region, for every tribe, for every tongue, for every nation, for every neighborhood. This is the heart of Jesus for every community. In Matthew 9 and in Mark 6, we read about an account where Jesus is standing before this great swelling crowd. And he's looking over this great crowd and it says that his heart starts to well up with compassion for them because they are it says like sheep without a shepherd like sheep without a shepherd he has a heart for them he sees them like sheep without a shepherd look i want you to to see and acknowledge here that the heart of our lord is to give the sheep a shepherd. The heart of our Lord is that the lost would be found, that the blind would see, that those who are weary would find rest for their souls, that those who despair would find real and lasting hope, that those who are dead in their sin would find new life in the Savior Jesus Christ. What about you this morning? What about you this morning? That heart Jesus has for the crowds, that heart that Paul and Titus had for this island, is that your heart for the people that our sovereign God has placed you around? That's the heart of the Lord. That's the heart of Paul when he calls himself a servant and apostle for the sake of the faith of the elect and their knowledge and the truth. And look, that same opportunity that Paul and Titus had in the island of Crete, we have today with the people that God has placed us around. Right now, people are moving, especially young families are moving into the Saddleback Valley, right? And right here, even right here in Rancho Santa Margarita, 
A lot of empty nesters are moving out and selling their homes to younger families. A couple months ago, someone sent me this white paper from the, a respected real estate investor in Orange County, uh, an expert, stating that RSM is one of the top cities in all of Orange County for homes that were being sold with, by pre-existing homeowners. We've got a similar situation going all throughout the valley with these new developments like in Baker Ranch and Rancho Mission Viejo and this new developments in Portola Hills where like a lot of you guys live in those places. Look, there are empty seats in this room that could be filled by those people. There are empty seats in these rows that could be filled by your family by your neighbors, by your friends, by your co-workers. Look, it's not just about King's Cross Church. There are empty seats in churches throughout our region that need to be filled with people who are like sheep without a shepherd. That's one reason we plant this church. We're not trying to take people from other churches. We want to be the kind of church as uniquely positioned with the size that we're at, with the vision and values that we have to, 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 to reach people that, that, that might not be reached, to help a, a new group of people grow that might not be growing spiritually. And so as our sovereign Lord is sending people into our community, do you have that Christ-like compassion for them? To go and to find those who need the hope of Christ. And then like Paul and Titus, build them up in faith and in knowledge. Now, really quick, here's the other thing that I want you to see uh, in that phrase in verse 1 about knowledge and faith, right? He wants to build them up in faith and in knowledge. Now, some of us here, some of us in this room, we assume or we were taught that these two things are at odds with each other, right? Christianity means that you just check knowledge at the door and it's just about having some abstract form of faith. But man, we see right here in so many places littered throughout the scriptures that the Bible doesn't pit those two against each other, does it? Knowledge and faith go hand in hand. Right knowledge leads to vibrant faith. I mean both. And so Paul wants to build them up in their faith, and he doesn't just want them to come to saving faith. He also wants to build them up in the truth, in knowledge, to grow and mature uh, spiritually. So one of our values here is, is wholeness. We want to be a people that are constantly growing in what it means to be whole in Christ, growing and maturing. We never arrive. We never graduate from our need to grow in grace. So know who you are in Christ as someone who is a servant, as somebody who is sent. Number two, we learn from Paul that we should know how to live for Christ. How to live for Christ. And we see this in the short phrase right there uh, at the end of verse one when he says, which accords to godliness. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth what does that serve? Which accords to, uh, which accords with godliness. Now, what comes to mind when you hear that word godliness? 
some of us have this like this picture in our mind of like religious perfection, right? Like this pristine outward appearance where you just walk around with maybe your shirt tucked in or your hair in a bonnet saying things like, praise be, right? Picture of this empty, vain religiosity. But the word for godliness here is actually the Greek, eusebion. Eusebion, which is a common euphemism in the first century for like when your behavior actually lines up with what you worship. It wasn't just a Christian phrase. It was a common phrase around to, to, to mean uh, 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 when your behavior lines up with what you worship. And so it's like the ancient first century version of practice what you preach. That's what that word means. Uh, that's kind of the sense of that word godliness that Paul's using here. Uh, Paul is taking that common euphemism for practice what you preach, and he's co-opting it for the gospel to say, and don't miss this, he's saying if you grow in knowledge and in faith, that will lead, that will lead to godliness. If you grow in knowledge and faith, that will lead, that should naturally lead to actually practicing what you preach. It means a wholehearted transformation of life. Paul's saying that through his ministry of teaching and building up the faith, he doesn't want people to simply just have more information in their heads, to have more smarts than the other people around them. The point is for people to receive truth that transforms. Not just truth that stores up in your head, but truth that transforms our lives. If we let the whole gospel bear weight on our lives, man, it should change all of us. The whole of who we are from the inside out. It becomes more, the gospel becomes more than just information in our head. It begins to burn in our heart and produce fruit in our lives. True Christianity isn't just about believing in Jesus and his grace, but becoming like him and walking in his ways. That's what true Christianity is. It's not just about believing in Jesus and his grace, but becoming like him, growing, maturing, walking in his ways. This is what it means to live for Christ. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. You know what that word disciple means? It means you're a, a follower of sorts, an apprentice. It means you spend time with him. You spend time with Christ. You immerse yourself in him through the gospel, through the word, through prayer. You surrender all of who you are at his feet. You see, in Jesus' day, to be a disciple of someone, uh, like uh, if you were a disciple of a rabbi, which is uh, Jesus was also a rabbi, right? Uh, in Jesus' day, to be a disciple of someone, like a rabbi, you'd actually have to leave your old life behind and you'd have to follow him around, right? You couldn't be a follower and just like Skype into a weekly coaching call, right? You didn't just subscribe to his uh, newsletter or, or follow his feed. Like you left it all behind. 
You followed him around on foot. You slept at his side. Jesus says, if you want to go where I'm going, if, then you got to deny yourself. you got to take up your cross, and you got to follow me with all of who you are. Now, you might be thinking, uh, the obvious at this point, that Jesus is no longer here in the flesh. So how can we follow him around? How can we apprentice under him the way that the disciples did? But Jesus says in John 16 uh, that it's actually better for us that he goes away. He tells his disciples, he's like, look, I'm going to go away. And he's, they're all like bummed out about it. They're like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, no, it's actually better for me that I'm going away because I'm going to send God the Holy Spirit to be with you, to be in you and to be with you as your divine helper. And what that means for us today is that now, now, after Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit came down, now, to be with Jesus and to follow him doesn't mean that you have to follow him on foot. Now it means that you just slow down, you open up your heart and your mind to who he is, to the word of God, and this, as the spirit of God illuminates the word for you, and you just surrender yourself completely to the ways of Jesus. That's what it means. Do you believe this morning that the gospel is truly life-changing, life-altering? That it asks for all of who you are? Do you believe that God's grace actually has a power to transform your life in the fullest sense of that phrase? And is that change evident in your life? Does what you believe change how you behave? Does your creed change your conduct? It's one thing to enjoy freedom from sin and to say, yes, I believe Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I enjoy my freedom from sin. But it's something more to actually live out your freedom in Christ to grow in godliness. Kevin DeYoung kind of gets to the heart of this when he says, many believers have willingly embraced Christian freedom, but without an equal pursuit of Christian virtue. Man, let's, not, let's, not, let's have that not be true about us. To be clear, this does not mean that we run around being driven by guilt and fear, wondering if I'm living up to God's standard. You will drive yourself crazy if that's your thinking because you'll never live up to God's standard. But praise God, that's why Jesus came. That's the point of the gospel. He lived for you and died for you to free you and liberate you from the shackled up life that sin has you in so that you can now choose to freely follow him and find life. Growing in godliness should not feel, be, it should not feel like death to us. It should feel like life. It should not feel like something that oh, we have to do. It should be, feel like something we get to do. So Paul wants us to not only know who we are in Christ, but he also wants us to know how to live for Christ. To grow in godliness. Number three, he wants us to know God's character. Know God's faithful character. Where do we see that? In verse two. 
And he continues that thought and he says, uh, uh, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, God manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our God and Savior. What is he saying? He's saying God is the faithful one. He says, God here, we have hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, he promised this before the ages uh, began. Paul is saying God is the faithful one, the true one, who is always good on his word. He never lies, it's always in his character. Why does this matter? Because our hope, it says in verse 2, our hope rests on the nature of of God and his promises. You won't have a real Christian hope unless you know who God is and what his character looks like. That's what verse 2 is saying when it says the hope of eternal life lies in the fact that before you existed, God had a plan for salvation. The hope of eternal life lies in the fact that before the ages began, God made a promise to save. Now, here's why that's especially significant for Paul in this letter. You see, it's helpful to know the religious context of Crete on the island here, right? The religious context of Crete was that they believed that their beautiful island uh, was the birthplace of the Greek gods, right? That's what the people in Crete, Crete believed, right? Their, their religious history was Greek mythology, and they believed that their island was the birthplace of the Greek gods and that the first worship of the gods began on their island. So they thought they were a little something special. All right? They believed that Zeus, who was uh, kind of sort of like the, the supreme uh, leader of the gods, that they believed that Zeus started off as sort of this dude's dude from their island that became a god. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, you know that Zeus was known for lying, uh, for conniving, for seducing women. That's what Zeus was known for, lying and seducing women. In fact, he'd often lie in order to seduce women. A lot of the famous stories in their mythology about Zeus were uh, included that. And so what happens, what happens now when, when you have an idol. What happens when you have an idol? You want to be like them, right? What you worship will shape how you behave. And so Cretan culture was infamous in the ancient world for their immorality. Cretan culture, like they were notorious for their backstabbing, for their treachery, for greed and promiscuity and lying. One of the Greek words for liar in the first century was the Greek word kratizo, which literally means to be a liar. They took that from the island of Crete. And so in the ancient Near East, in the first century, one of the Greek words for liar was kratizo. In other words, just like the Cretans. Most of the men in Crete, they served as mercenaries and pirates. It was well known that the island cities in Crete were unsafe, that they were high in crime, high in violence, high in sexual corruption. It was like the pirate hub of the Mediterranean, like Tortuga in Pirates of the Caribbean, right? 
remember the first time you went on that ride, Pirates of the Caribbean, as a kid? And you're seeing, like, just all the running around and, like, the fire and, like, the drunkenness. And you're like, what is going on, right? Like, what's mom holding me, right? Like, all that craziness that in the ports on that ride, that's what Crete was like. Imagine planning a church on the Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> that's what Paul and Titus were doing. And even one of their own Greek prophets knows how awful that they themselves were. Here, here's Paul, what Paul says later on in verse 12. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. You're like, hey, Paul, that's me. And he's like, hey, your guy said it, not me, right? Why is any of this significant? Because when Paul refers to God as the one who never lies, he's not just dropping some random arbitrary attribute of God. He's being very specific. He's being very intentional. His reference to lying was in explicit confrontation to the Greek god Zeus. You see, there were some Cretan leaders that were corrupt, believed that lying was acceptable. And they made their way into these new Christian churches, imposing their Greek mythologies onto their teachings about God and Jesus Christ. And so Paul is making crystal clear to Titus. He's saying, the God that I serve, the Lord Jesus Christ, he never lies. Paul is showing how countercultural the God of the Bible is. He's the faithful one, the unchangeable one, the one who never lies. Paul wants to make clear that the God revealed in Jesus Christ is different. Some of his most basic character traits our truth and faithfulness. And in verse 3, when Paul says God is not manifested, or, or God is now manifested, rather, in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted, what he's talking about here is the gospel, the good news. The good news that God has broken into history in a tangible way. That God has acted in history at a time when there are eyewitnesses to prove it. Paul is emphasizing that the revealed truth of the gospel is something real. Something true. Something faithful. Something you can build your life upon. God isn't hidden. God isn't playing games. He's not playing Marco Polo with us to see if we'll find him. Come and find me. No, he came to us. He came to us. He said, you were lost, but now you're found. You lost sheep, but here I am, your shepherd. He came to us. He revealed himself to us. And so it seems that when you read the Bible, when you understand the gospel, you, can, you know who God is. That's Paul's point. He's not a fluid God. He's unchangeable. 
He's not moved and swayed. He's impassable. Christianity does not offer us a code or hot tips for living. It offers us good news. Our faith rests on this gospel. And so Paul, just in the first lines of introduction of his introduction, he wants us to know who he is in Christ, what it means to live for him, and the character of the God that he worships and follows. Lastly, we see from Paul's words in verse 4, we need to know what you need the most. Paul wants you to know what it is that you need the most. He says in verse 4, To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Two things from this verse as we close. He says the two things that you need the most that only God through Jesus provides. Grace and peace. Grace meaning unmerited favor of, from God. The unmerited favor of God. Grace is the reason, if you're a follower of Jesus, that any of us are here. It's the reason that we have all that we have in Christ. Grace rescues us from our rebellion and relieves us from our self-righteousness of feeling like we have to earn our way in. Grace is what we need. And we also need peace. Peace. That word peace is, talks about the reconciliation that we need as sinners before a holy and righteous God. You see, before Christ, we are at war with God. But now in Christ, we are reconciled. We were at odds with God before we knew Him, but now through Jesus, we're adopted by Him. We were at odds with Him, now we're adopted by Him. Did you know that Paul starts every one of his letters with this greeting, grace and peace? He ends some of his letters with grace and peace too. He begins every one of his letters with this phrase, grace and peace, because he knows it's what we need the most. He knows it's the two things that we can never uh, remove from the center of who we are and what we enjoy and celebrate as followers of Jesus. It's what we need most. And both of these, Paul says, we get them through the Savior. Jesus Christ, the one that we all long for. Paul says God is our Savior, and God's saving activity comes through us, through Jesus Christ. When he used that phrase in verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior, he was dropping a theological bomb. Because many of the people understood that the Jews, which is Paul was a former Jew, that they believed that God, Yahweh from the Old Testament, was the only capital S Savior. And so when Paul says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior, he's saying, look, this man, Jesus Christ, is the God-man. He's god with us. He's God who came for us. 
And so all of who you are in Christ, all of what it means to live for Christ is by him and for him and through him. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Here's something we all know. Something we all know is that one day, the short life that we have is going to end. That time will come. That time will come. I mean, many of us in Southern California and just throughout the world with the tragic news of what happened just seven days ago today, confronted with that. Death is one of those things that just gives us camaraderie as creatures. We have camaraderie in our suffering, in our wrestling and trying to make sense of what is life and what is death. And one day, the short life that we all have is going to end. And to face that day confidently, Paul knows you need grace and peace. Grace and peace will not come to you by your efforts. It won't come to you by your investment accounts. It won't come to you by your reputation among men and women. Grace and peace comes from God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus is the one, the only one, who perfectly merited favor from God. He had no need for God's grace because he earned, he was the only human being to merit favor from God. But then he was forsaken by the Father so that we can be forgiven in him and brought in. And now, as followers of Jesus here at King's Cross, we have been sent out saved by him, to serve him, and being sent out by him as grace and peace ambassadors. To proclaim the Son with our words and our deeds, by being in our community, but not of it. Because we have a new identity in Christ. And not of our communities, but for him. Because they're sheep without a shepherd sent by God to bring hope and renewal, sent by God to make a meaningful difference for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.